This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle market trends every week on Wharton Business Radio, Sirius XM Channel 111. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Nick Rusinoff, expert on currency research. That's what you see for those safe haven currencies is hedging the FX risk is actually exposing you to more risk. Or even the head of the Digital India Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. This is a special edition of the podcast with co-host Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Train ETF Sponsor, Professor Siegel is out for the week traveling this week, but happy Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect, co-hosting in the studio today. Welcome back, Wes. Glad to have you here. Excited to be here, as always. It's been a while since we've had you here in the studio. Uh, please note, I'm a registered, rep- registered representative for Side Fund Services. The discussion is not tied to the offer of investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Trade's affiliates. Uh, we have a great show lined up today. Another guest in the studio, Kate Waldrick. Uh, thanks for coming to the studio for us today. Thanks for having me here. We're going to be talking to you uh, second half of the show. Um, professor, assistant professor at Georgetown, a lot of work uh, on bankruptcy. Have your own podcast, Capital Isn't. Uh, so I'm looking Correct. forward to, to drilling into all those those issues with you later in the show. Um, the first segment, we'll be talking with Jeffrey Korzenik, uh, who's the CIO of Fifth Third Bank. Uh, Jeff, I, ha- I believe we have you on the line. Yes, I am. Thank you. Welcome to our, our program. Um, Thank you. Great to be back. Maybe you could uh, sort of describe to our listeners a little bit about your background, your CI, uh, Chief Investment Strategist, Fifth Third Bank. Maybe you could talk a little bit about uh, your background, how you got to Fifth Third Bank, and what you oversee there. Uh, sure. I, I guess the starting point is, is the bank itself. Uh, we just uh, celebrated our 160th anniversary uh, since our founding. We're a super regional bank. Uh, headquartered in Cincinnati, Ohio. I'm Chicago-based. Um, I am responsible for uh, much of the asset allocation and the general economic messaging for the uh, uh, the assets we have under management. We have about $37 billion under management, $27 billion of the private bank and uh, institutional, which is my uh, particular area of, uh, of focus. Um, I uh, had a Wall Street career um, to really date myself. I'm a dinosaur. I started with a company called E.F. Hutton, which some of your listeners may be old enough to remember and and, uh, spent a lot of time on uh, Wall Street and joined Fifth Third back in 2009. And uh, and so maybe talk a little bit about your your process in terms of overseeing investment strategy. What are the the types of things that that you're focused on? Sure. We... we, um, uh, take a a parallel approach, and we start each year with a strategic asset allocation process, which is fairly typical of how fiduciaries approach this, looking at cross-correlation between asset classes, uh, coming up with uh, uh, capital market assumptions, um, as well as volatility assumptions. Um, What we do different from from some of the others is um, that will help us set up a uh, what would essentially be a set-and-forget portfolio. If we had to close our eyes for five years, what would we like a portfolio to, to look like in terms of asset allocation? We overlay that with a monthly process where we have a very rigorous review, uh, where we tap some of the talent around our 10-state our, uh, footprint, 
um, and uh, some of the great experience of our portfolio, senior portfolio managers and product heads. And each month we review that and make what we call tactical tilts, um, some small shifts to the portfolio that we believe will give us uh, better portfolio, uh, portfolio rep- uh, performance over a 6- to 12-month basis. So how do you look at the world today? I mean, there's a lot going on in the world. Uh, how do you sort of look at the global asset mix and uh, and sort of all the geopolitical discussions that we see in the headlines every day? Like, how are you viewing the world? So, so we are actually um, increased our, our weight to equities uh, a few months ago. Um, we uh, had... I have to give a little perspective on this. Um, we believe we were probably the first private bank in the country to go overweight equities in response to the presidential election because we believed um, we understood what it would do to business confidence and the traditional relationship between business confidence and CapEx. So that uh, that made us very bullish um, for a while. By the end of la- last year, we were worried that the market had not adequately uh, discounted the risk of higher interest rates um, and uh, the risk of the president uh, fulfilling some of his campaign promises on, on uh, trade and all sorts of things that we thought could be disruptions and hadn't been adequately priced in. We felt that has been priced in, and we're actually looking for an acceleration in the U.S. economy on the back of a, uh, a stronger consumer as wage increases continue and a uh, uh, and uh, a renewal of uh, capex uh, as the tax bill and the calculations that uh, uh, that uh, businesses are now taking that allow them to uh, depreciate uh, their CapEx faster, essentially expense it, and now have a lower hurdle threshold on an after-tax basis because of the lower corporate tax rate. We think the two factors together are going to give a new um, a new lift to the economy, and that will ultimately be reflected in equity prices. Hey, Jeff, this is Wes. Um, I can actually confirm in my research ahead of time that you did make some good calls, and you're definitely a lot more bullish than a lot of your uh, contemporaries, so good good job on that. Um, one question I had on your on your equity call here: Do you differentiate amongst, like, say, U.S. emerging, you know, developed, or, or is it just broad based buy stocks? We, we do, and um, we um, we have pulled in. We have been overweight uh, international. We pulled in on uh, on that, and are are more neutral weight uh, uh, today with regard to international versus uh, domestic. Um, same is true of the domestic issue. Uh, uh, the same is true of domestic small cap, large cap. The same is true of um, of uh, international developed versus emerging markets at this point in time. So we are um, generically bullish on on equities. We have no at this point in time no particular uh, uh, side we're favoring. Though I will tell you, we're probably. Um, uh, going to continue to favor uh, the move has been towards more domestic we think that may continue uh, but at this point we're, we're, we're neutral there as well uh, the big challenge that we see and where we are doing a lot of focus of our, our, our work is on the labor markets because ultimately if there's an end to this cycle we believe it's going to revolve around tightness of the labor markets and short term that's good because it raises wages and it spurs cap X to make existing workforces more productive Long term, though, it's what's going to end this cycle. Yeah, so you, that is one of the areas where I know you've done a lot of work around in terms of some of the big factors impacting our labor force. Do you want to sort of talk through what, uh, how you have a very different lens of looking at sure. those factors impacting the labor force? Sure. So it's no secret that uh, everyone understands we have a very low labor force participation rate. If you had asked our policymakers 
uh, a year ago or six months ago or perhaps even today. Um, they would dismiss this and say, well, all we need to do is get the economy moving at a faster pace. People come in off the sidelines. Um, we perhaps, because of our positioning, we're, we're the bankers to the industrial heartland. We, we essentially started seeing some of the structural problems in the labor force, uh, we think, um, early. Uh, prime among them is the opioid epidemic. Um, this is not just a social, incredible social tragedy, but it's a true economic cost. Um, you may have seen work done out of Princeton University, Professor Alan Kruger, who's estimated that of uh, prime age males, 1.4 million are missing out of the labor force because of uh, uh, opioid addiction, and, and that's certainly been confirmed anecdotally across our footprint. Um, and, and the ability to find a worker who can pass a drug test is an increasing problem for people who are industries that need to drug test because of safety, manufacturing, transportation, construction. Um, so so that's, the, that's the dark side. Um, we have seen a opportunity though that's really interesting and and it's nothing we came up with ourselves but it's been an observation of models of success that the small and medium-sized businesses that we we uh we uh bank have undertaken and that is uh, uh we're saying opioids may be our biggest uh, workforce problem but the ability to bring return ex-offenders people with a criminal taint on their record the ability to bring them back into the workforce or uh, utilize them better, we think is our biggest workforce to economic opportunity. As we talk about how you got into that research line, so I guess you're looking for the labor force issues as that's going to be the issue that throws the economy over or, or becomes a crimp on profit margins. That got you into this, this line of research. How did that whole it, genesis it, it, it start? Did. And some of it started you know, quite simply. Um, uh, we have a large operation in the Carolinas and in Charlotte. A, a family member told me to go eat at the King's Kitchen which is a restaurant uh, and, uh, which is affiliated with a nonprofit, the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center, uh, that uh, takes ex-offenders and people, uh, people off the streets, people, former addicts, and puts them to work and gives them an opportunity to rejoin the workforce. Um, and I started mentioning that, and uh, people across our footprint, my colleagues elsewhere in Fifth Third, started telling me about businesses in their part of the country that had also focused on this. And what I found is, speaking to businesses like uh, Nehemiah Manufacturing in uh, Cincinnati, which is incidentally run by a Wharton grad, um, and Cascade Engineering in, in Western Michigan, um, all these businesses in different parts of the country had been very successful at hiring not just one or two ex-offenders, but dozens and in some cases of hundreds. And uh, they, they found that uh, independently came to the same model of success. And uh, w what uh, we have started doing is studying those models of success, um, formalizing them, and sharing them with other business owners. Um, it's to the point now where when I speak to a group, I was just in Cincinnati speaking to a couple hundred people. As is typical now, a business owner came up to me and said, I'd like to try this. What do I do? And we try to steer them to people who have already done this or potential uh, partners that they can use to, uh, to help. Let me just reintroduce our guest real quick. We're talking with Jeff Korzenik, CIO of Fifth Third Bank. In the studio, we have Kate Walduck, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. Wes, you were going to jump in there yeah. with the question. Hey, hey Jeff. Um, this is a little bit outside of my uh, circle of competence, um, but I did have a few questions for you. So, sure. so you mentioned this uh, opioid crisis, and then it sounds like you're also investigating folks that are out of the workforce mainly because, you know, they got some bad record or out of jail and Correct. no one wants to hire them. Um, but then you also mentioned that there's this tightening labor force 
what is the dy- dynamic going forward as, as far as like solving both the opioid crisis and you know people that can't get work? And I assume in a tight labor force, people start looking for other alternatives. Correct. So in theory, you could get more and more support to help solve those problems. Is that absolutely? I mean, that's a very insightful um, question because we've come to believe that the missing ingredient in many ways in solving these problems, um, so government's been involved, nonprofits have been uh, involved, but the business community has not really been tapped. Um, the, um, the the CEO of a company called Butterball Farms, they are, they um, make a sort of gourmet butters. They were the originator of the Butterball Turkey. Their CEO told me, you know, nonprofits come to me for for money, but they never come to me for advice. And again, his words, I've got to believe that the value my enterprise can bring to solutions is greater than the 10% of my profits that I can give uh, to charities. And so what we're seeing now is the first step to the solution, I think in many ways, is to get businesses caring about the issue as a matter of business importance. And um, so it's complex, and the two problems are are actually interrelated. Um, The opioid addiction is is a horrendous problem. Um, Health and Human Services, HHS, um, estimates that 11.5 million Americans are are abusing opioids, taking them for recreational purposes or non-medicinal purposes. Of that, 2.1 million would meet the formal definition of what we think of as addicts. that's a staggering number, and you can see how that's, you know, not, it's not just a social issue. With those numbers, that's a workforce issue. The problem becomes a um, opioid addiction is a very, very tough addiction to, to, to kick. And even if you do kick it, and it does, um, I've, I've read that uh, you have to have be free and clear of opioids for two years before your brain chemistry returns to normal. So once that morphine molecule gets a hold of your brain, it's, it, it doesn't let go. So it's very intractable. But even if you get someone through rehab and it sticks, the problem is very often they have now had some criminal justice interaction as well. A lot of crimes are committed to feed an addiction, for instance. Um, and now you have the difficulty of uh, reentry, getting ex-offenders back in the workforce. And our, and our numbers there are also terrible. Uh, the Bureau of Justice Statistics did a study of those exiting uh, state prisons. Um, they just updated it, but the, the five-year number, uh, should be the seven-year number, which they had uh, before the update was uh, uh, that, uh, me, five-year number was 76.6% of those who exited uh, state prisons by five years had been rearrested. So we're, we're really failing where the business community is stepping up now is they are showing an interest in ex-offenders. And um, that's good news because that starts to get solutions generated. Um, What we worry about, given our research, is that there is a model that works and a model that makes it much more of a a random success. So um, businesses are open to hiring ex-offenders. That is great. Uh, the problem is not ex- every ex-offender is ready for employment, so how do you know who's ready? Um, the other problem is even those who are ready are often living very much on the edge um, financially and may need support with housing, um, health care, uh, staying uh, off any kind of addiction, and all these sort of services that, that may be surrounding them that are needed to keep, uh, to keep this going. And, that, and that's a big challenge. But what our model has shown is that those businesses that embrace that, that partner with 
nonprofits that do workforce development that focus on reentry and utilize those nonprofits to tell them who's ready is step one. Step two is making sure that they've also partnered typically with nonprofits, but uh, in other ways, to make sure that they can accommodate the special needs of, of this population. Um, the good news and what's really exciting is that there is plenty of anecdotal evidence, but also some formal studies that show that when you do this right, when you hire the right ex-offender and you support them the right way, you get a payback as an employer in getting not just an employee, but you actually get an employee who is marked by very low turnover, very high dedication, and the combination of low turnover and high dedication also tends to result in um, uh, high productivity. Kate, I want to bring you into the conversation a little bit. Any thoughts from you know listening in? Just you know, you focus a lot on capitalism in your in your podcast. Any any thoughts on what you're hearing about the labor force issues? Uh, how you know how people? Any, any reactions to anything you're hearing so far? Yeah, well, I'm a little curious <clears throat> about your take on the origins of the opioid crisis. There are some who think it was a demand-driven explanation, which is to say that these were deaths of despair. Right? People were feeling depressed. They were feeling like they didn't have any hope. For the future, and so they really sought out these opioids to uh, to self medicate. Whereas other people think that it's more of a supply driven explanation. Uh, this is the result of big pharma pushing drugs on people um, by creating perverse incentives for doctors. Do you have a take on that? Um, pr- probably some of each. Uh, we actually started looking at structural problems. Um, our starting point was. Uh, long-term unemployment. And and one of the things that's truly incredible about this whole business cycle and is truly atypical about all the other uh, post-World War II economic cycles is the degree to which we saw long-term unemployment embedded um, just uh, sort of by way of comparison with metrics. The average duration of unemployment in a recession post-World War II usually goes up 15 or 20 weeks of of, uh, average duration unemployment. By 2011, it shot up to 41 or 42 weeks. And we're still above 20 weeks. So, so we're still, it looks as if we're still in the depths of a recession in terms of long-term unemployment. And we do believe, and this is to your point of being demand-driven, um, that there is a relationship between the despair and hopelessness of long-term unemployment um, that, that leads to um, the desire to self-medicate. Um, at the same time, if you read books um, like Dreamland, which is a wonderful book that, that uh, uh, kind of goes over how we got to where we are. Um, you know, there were a lot of incentives in the medical community um, to to um, to overprescribe. Um, you know, I, I, for uh, when we first started talking about this in front of audiences a couple of years ago, invariably people would come up to me and say, my son just had a sports injury, high school sports injury, had a broken bone, and they gave him 60 OxyContin pills with an automatic refill. Uh, and that was commonplace until about a year ago. So I think I think there's truth in both uh, both approaches. Um, I am happy to say we are uh, seem to be getting our arms around the overprescribing. That's the good news. The problem is these people who are already uh, used to self-medicating uh, with this and and um, you know in the intractable nature of this, uh, not completely intractable, but the very difficult nature of this uh, this addiction. I had a quick personal story on that. My my six year old broke her elbow, fell off the monkey bars from the top of the monkey bars. Mm. They they were in the hospital emergency room getting they had to get surgery, but you know what kind of pain pills did she get at right right away? And then they're like, oh, she's only gotten some aspirin and then or whatever this light dose was, and they gave her this thing called fentanyl, which I had never heard of. Stop. Right up her nose, right quick. Wow. La- a little bit later, what? 
And then, at, and this is at at uh, at Chop, the, the sort of one of the best premier hospitals for yeah. for kids. Later in the in the transfer to the other one, same thing. And so, it, and I had never even heard of those drugs. And then, then actually, the next week, Trump's on TV talking about banning fentanyl. I was like, yeah. whoa, what did yeah, they I, just give her? No, that's scary. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's very difficult because these drugs are, were prescribed because they provide a benefit. I mean, there's, 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 uh, you know, it was a real reason they got prescribed. The, the problem was that there was a miss. Uh, I mean, it's kind of incredible, but if, if uh, you know, you look at the history of this, there's sort of a misunderstanding about just how addictive it, it was, um, and, and then you built other kinds of incentives um, uh, into the medical system. You know, doctors being doctors uh, repayment rates by insurers being dictated by patient satisfaction and and um, patient satisfaction could equate to give, give give the patient what he asked for still in pain give him another refill and you know and these are these are things that may not have initially started as abuses but but became abuses uh, Jeff this is Wes again um, just kind of, I want to pull back to uh, employment and something you mentioned there. Uh, it certainly sounds like this this crisis is explaining maybe part of it, but h- how much of it is uh, you know due to like automation and all these other things? Like, do you guys have incentive or not incentives? Uh, opinions on that or data? So we, we, we do. I, I think you know there there's certainly a skills. Uh, first of all, automation always is a job destroyer. Technology is always a job destroyer. We, we you know, we, we pulled up real long-term charts of, of uh, manufacturing employment as a percentage of the labor force. And, you know, in 1948, uh, 50% of all workers were, were in manufacturing. And, uh, you know, that manufacturing plus mining is probably, you know, somewhere closer to 15%, 12-15% today. Um, so, this is a industry or set of industries that lends itself to job replacement. Um, that being said, um, some of the tightest shortages of jobs are not in, you know, uh, they're in skilled jobs, but but um, they are not things that lend themselves to replacement by automation. Um, so, uh, well-known shortage of, of, of truck drivers, well-known shortage. Um, if you look up the national association of home builders talks about, uh, a shortage of in subcontractors, uh, you know, the, these are certainly skilled positions, but they're not jobs that require a graduate degree or even necessarily a college degree. And, uh, we, this is where we really think that, uh, things like, uh, the drug epidemic has really taken a toll on the labor force because these are also jobs that, that require you to be drug-free. One of the things that Wes and I were talking about right before the show was just how uh, sort of knowing that you're, you're focused on this opioid issue and sort of this retraining of sort of people who are incarcerated, what, how, does, how do you as a sort of investment strategist get focused on that mandate and then try to incorporate that in your, your, your portfolios? Like how does that mandate work? How is that reflected today in your views? Yeah, that's a great question. So what we think um, – we call this the eighth inning of this economic cycle, and, and it's been a slow-moving cycle. So you know, you could say every, every inning takes over a year. And we've been you know, very consistent. We keep ourselves honest. We go back where we're saying it was fifth inning and sixth inning before. Um, what we think this means is that when we get to that point of an acute labor sh- shortage, we have a different and much more rapid decay 
of the economy than would typically happen. So the way it usually works is you get tighter labor, you get wage increases, and people come in off the sidelines. We're saying the problems that keep them off the sidelines are much more intractable or much more difficult hurdles this time around so that instead of getting this new supply of workers off the sidelines, this time you're just going to get stuck. And so the disruptions due to a labor shortage will um, will spiral very quickly. So when we get to the ninth inning, instead of our saying, well, we got some real time, um, we'll probably pull the trigger and become much more defensive in our mm-hmm. portfolios. And we'll also be looking for other kinds of disruption. You know, people think about labor shortage only in terms of wage, in- wage inflation. We're actually less worried about because we think we're in for productivity gains, so um, the wage increases will largely be offset by, by productivity, or, uh, so, so that isn't our biggest fear. What we worry about more are log jams in, in production that cause other problems. So for instance, wh- why are home prices going up so much faster than the rate of inflation? Well, because we're not able to meet the demand we're not able to supply the, the uh, uh, fully meet the the demand for housing that's demographically driven. Why is that? Because we have a shortage of workers. So you get home price and shelter inflation, which is a big component of CPI. Um, why did oil prices go up as much as they have over the last year with our fracking technology? Once we're able to just turn on the spigots, it turns out it's a labor shortage, particularly of truckers in the in in, in the oil patch. So. Labor shortages manifest themselves in economic problems well beyond simply wage inflation. Kate? Yeah, I have a slightly different question. This has to do with structural changes in the small business lending market. Mm-hmm. Um, after the financial crisis, like huge banks, uh, you know, Citi, Bank of America, Chase, really pulled out of the space, um, creating a void. But on the other hand, you saw big players like Prosper, uh, peer-to-peer lenders, uh, LendingClub.com, mm-hmm. partially filling that void. So what's the role of a bank like Fifth Third in that space? You know, we, we are, um, th- this is kind of our bread and butter. Our, um, you know, it depends how you define that space. And, and uh, I, I probably am pretty limited in, in what I can say uh, about the uh, uh, about the company and our, our own, but I would say more, more broadly about the industry. There's always a role for community banks, for regional banks, for super regional banks that can effectively fill a void that the the big international banks don't necessarily uh, do very well. Any other sort of thoughts on the on? You should mention you got, you got very bullish right after the election of Trump. Any other just comments on how the, that has played out in terms of the politics, in terms of where you see a lot of the geopolitical discussions today um, beyond just the U.S.? The, you know, um, I, I, I'll say the most difficult aspect of that stance was to make sure people understood this was not a political statement. It, it, it's not that we were pro-Trump or anti-Trump. It was here are policies and here's a message, here's what it's going to result in. And, and that's something that we're you know, very adamant about being neutral politically and just addressing policies. And, and even then, we only say we only care about how it moves the economy in the three to five year window that the 
the markets uh, are concerned with, not a citizen's view. That's that's everyone's uh, own view. So we are. Um, uh, that was sort of the, the the big one for us was the deregulatory pro business uh, tone, and we thought was the most important because that's the big driver of, of capex is, is business confidence. But then of course we, we did think the, inst- the the corporate side of the tax reform was very consequential as well. Um, we one of our tenets this year is we talk about peak uh, peak stimulus uh, is behind us. And we initially meant just monetary, but now we talk a subset of that being, you know, peak Trump, meaning that some of the initiatives that the that administration is undertaking now, we think are less constructive to the to business. And, and we, we think that policy um, going forward is not likely to be particularly supportive. We've gotten the most supportive elements of policy in place. And now you have things that are much more mixed that that. Again, as citizens, we can like or dislike trade issues, um, uh, immigration restrictions, but uh, aren't necessarily supportive from a market investment standpoint. Well, Jeff, uh, it's been an interesting conversation. Any place you want to direct people if they want to follow more on your work on either the opioid crisis or how to get get involved in the employment uh, discussion you're talking about? Any, any ways for people to follow your work and how to get in touch? So on 53.com is our website. We have uh, uh, do put things up there on a regular basis. Um, I'm also on LinkedIn. People can follow me on LinkedIn, where I do uh, uh, tend to uh, put a lot of that uh, work out. And uh, those are probably the two best places to uh, to do that. Well, very interesting. It's been a been a very interesting conversation, Jeff. Thanks for uh, trip for joining us. Thanks. It was a pleasure as always. We've been you've been you're listening to Behind the Markets on Sirius XM 111. Great conversation with Jeff Korzenix, Chief Investment Strategist at Fifth Third Bank. We're going to be back with Kate Walduck talking about, about her work on bankruptcy. We'll be back after a short break. Welcome back to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by Warren School. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, alongside co-host today, Wes Gray, CEO of Alpha Architect. We have in the studio Kate Walduck, Assistant Professor of Finance at Georgetown University, also co-host of a podcast called Capital Isn't. Uh, Kate, thanks for again for making the trip to Philadelphia and joining us here in the studio. Thanks. Great to be here. So... Tell us a little bit. Just give us start off by telling us about yourself, how you got to where you are at Georgetown, and how you got to start your own podcast. Uh, shoot, how far should I go back? How was, this is your story? I was so a tell wee us, little babe. Tell us your story. <laughs> Harkened by the appeal of finance academia. Um, I guess I'll start when I was in college. Uh, I studied economics, and I wanted to be a trader on Wall Street. Hmm. Um, I didn't know what being a trader would entail, but I was like, this is definitely what I want to do. Um, so I got an internship at Lehman Brothers to their fixed income prop trading desk, one of them at least. What uh, year was this? This was in the beginning of 2008. Ah, good time. Yeah, a couple weeks later, that desk was spun off. And so I joined Lehman. They had these like two shifts. And so I joined in July of 2008 on uh, their government bonds trading desk. Mm. And, um, you know, the rest is history. Uh, It was a terrible experience. And so after that, I went back to school and was like, there's no way I'm doing that with my life. Uh, So I spoke to my undergraduate thesis advisor and was like, what do I do? And he was like, you know, why don't you think about a PhD? Why don't you think about becoming a professor? And I was like... A, I can't afford a PhD, and B, like, that's how you become a professor? And he was like, yeah, so they're uh, free, you don't have to pay for them, and that's, you know, you get your PhD, and you go on the job market, do some research, that's how you become a professor. And I was like, that sounds awesome. Uh, So I had to take some time off from school, because I didn't have all, like, the math prereqs to Mm -hmm. do it, Um, but I came back, I, like, loaded up on math, 
Uh, eventually ended up at NYU. I started in Stern's economics program, then I switched to finance because it was just a better fit for me in terms of my research interests. Um, I originally wanted to study the financial crisis and shadow banking. It's probably not too surprising. Uh, I tried to do an internship at the Office of Financial Research and get some cool like derivatives data, but they had shut that down and they were like, we're not sharing data with grad students anymore. Um, and then I realized that I really wanted to learn how to use like programming. I wanted to know how to scrape. I wanted to know how to use like NLP software in Python. And I also was interested in the law. And so I thought bankruptcy was a good place to exercise those skills, do some learning. Um, so I scraped a bunch of bankruptcy dockets and court documents and kind of went to work trying to understand what goes on in Chapter 11. Interesting. Wow. Uh, Kate, this is Wes, and it makes a lot of sense why you studied corporate bankruptcy, uh, given the Lehman <laughs> story. I, I didn't know that till now. So, uh, you know, life leads you in crazy areas. Yeah. Um, so you might highlight, and I know in your dissertation, you know, specifically, like what was the research question you were, you know, trying to answer and what did you kind of find? What was the key takeaway for non-PhD uh, geeks? Sure. Well, it's usually a little tough for me to motivate like bankruptcy research because you know people don't care too much about it unless you're in distress investing. And so what I usually tell people is that it's a big deal for two reasons. One is that it's big. So in the decade spanning the financial crisis, 2004 to 2014, over $2 trillion of liabilities passed through the Chapter 11 system. Uh, for some context, that's about the size of like the U.S. student loan market and the credit card market combined. And so it's you know a lot of money going through Chapter 11. Also, and I think more importantly, the rest of the world looks to the U.S. Chapter 11 system as a model for bankruptcy, because historically across the world, bankruptcy regimes were pretty strict. Right? So you have a business, you borrow some money, you default on it, then either you have your assets immediately seized by the government and auctioned off and liquidated, or in some cases you could even go to jail. Right? Like debtor's prison still exists. And so all of a sudden, the U.S. in 1978 comes up with this code where they're like, not only can you continue operating if you default on your debt, but you can, the managers can actually govern the whole process of the reorganization. They have the exclusive rights to come up with a plan of restructuring their debt that the creditors then have to vote on. Um, so it became incredibly manager-friendly. And after that, as other countries tried to become more business-friendly, they started changing their codes to become more like the United States. And so it's really important to understand this model of a new type of bankruptcy regime. But in actuality, there's a lot of nuance there, right? It's never exactly what you think it is. And a recent trend in the past couple of decades in terms of Chapter 11 bankruptcy is that creditors have been seizing more and more control. Uh, that's partially secured creditors as well as unsecured creditors. Um, my research so thus far has been focusing on unsecured creditors. Uh, they form committees in bankruptcy, and so I look at what happens when they, you know, when they band together and they cooperate. One of my main findings is that when unsecured creditors try to exert control in the bankruptcy process, this usually is associated with like a 10% increase in the rate of M&A or the chances that the firm gets acquired in bankruptcy. And I argue that this is consistent with the incentives of committees that are made up of trade creditors. Uh, if you're like a vendor to a firm, then you want the firm to continue operating so that you can continue doing business with them. Um, oftentimes, if there's an acquisition in bankruptcy, you'll get paid in cash as opposed to getting like some haircut or some new equity in the reorganized firm. And they might want they might prefer that. Um, so my, my findings aren't entirely too surprising. Um, but overall, I'm interested in like the complex interplay of control between unsecured creditors 
bankers, bank lenders, uh, managers, as well as judges. And so, and, and so for people who are listening about the secured versus unsecured and what are the implications for people who are investing in these in, – it's mostly – people with a lot of debt and bonds. And so it's a, have you looked at, well, from the investment side, what, how people should be thinking about this this uh, this research? Like what is it, what are the takeaways for people? How do we make some money on this uh, <laughs> research, Kate? Or, or protect themselves because it's a lot about the risks, right? I am really not in the business yeah. of generating investment advice. Um, from the academic perspective, we care much more about allocative efficiency or what we call ex post efficiency of the bankruptcy system. Mm. So we want to make sure that we live in a world where uh, positive NPV investments or like good operations are uh, continued so that we don't cr- destroy jobs when we needlessly would destroy jobs, but also that poorly performing assets, negative NPV investments are um, spun off and liquidated in an efficient way. And so that's really what motivates like the academic approach to bankruptcy. In terms of distress investing, I think a lot of the focus is on uh, what tier of the capital structure you buy into and whether you can buy into it in a way that will give you control over the firm afterwards. And so a lot of distress funds take this approach where they'll purchase bonds, they'll purchase junior debt, and hope that that gets converted into post-reorganization equity. Uh, Usually that's called like pursuing a fulcrum strategy or a loan-to-own strategy, which can be pursued in different ways. Um, I think that this has become a pretty normal thing now. I think that these markets have become more and more saturated, and so I think there's fewer ways to uh, to make a ton of money here. But M&A is now becoming so commonplace in bankruptcy that it's really spread to like the mid-tier firms, smaller firms. Um, so I think that you know, depending on how big you are, there may be opportunities at looking at uh, distressed situations for like mid-tier firms. Um, but yeah, that's the best that I have. Yeah. W- one of the things we uh, talked about pr- prior was how, how a lot of the bankrupts and uh, corporate rules and everything, they affect small businesses uh, perhaps differently than the bigger businesses. you mind speaking to that, like how, how this all plays for the small businesses out there? Yeah. Again, this is something I'm interested in more from an academic perspective, how this affects like social welfare. Uh, small businesses are totally different animal than a large business. When a small business fails, I mean, 80 to 90 percent of them don't file for bankruptcy because it's too expensive for them to go through the process where right? you have to like hire a lawyer. You have to pay bankruptcy fees. You have to come up with a complicated plan. It's usually just not worth it for them. So there's out of court or out of at least federal bankruptcy court options for them where they usually rely on state law. So state laws can govern uh, like how secured lending contracts are enforced. They can govern what we call assignments for the benefit of creditors, which are kind of like mini bankruptcy auctions that are held outside of bankruptcy court. Uh, there's also laws on unsecured creditor rights um, at the state level for failed firms. And again, that's what I study. Uh, I focus largely on unsecured creditors. They try and – well, so what I study is fraudulent transfer law. Let's say you have a small business and you know that you're failing, and so you kind of dump out the cash register in a bag and you like mm. abscond with it. That's kind of an egregious example. That would obviously be illegal. But there are a lot of types of fraudulent transfer that are questionably legal. And I looked at a set of changes to this type of law that makes it a lot easier for unsecured 
lenders to reclaim that money back, to reclaim what could be considered a fraudulent transfer. And what I find is that actually we would expect this to increase unsecured lending, kind of decrease the the interest rates that unsecured lenders are charging. But on the other hand, it makes it riskier to be a small business. And so what I found was that the equilibrium effects of this is that it decreased uh, small business growth. It also decreased the rates at which businesses were failing. And so what we think was going on was that like serial entrepreneurs kind of stopped being serial because Mm. it made it easier for unsecured creditors to kind of claw back some funds. There is that sort of narrative right now about like, why do we not have as much small business growth in the U.S.? And is it something structural in the economy? Is it that we lost the entrepreneurial bug? But you're saying that there might be some bankruptcy laws that are driving the lack of small business growth. Yeah, I'm not sure that I would say this is like the main driver. Yeah, I don't think it's the dominant factor. But yeah, I mean, I asked that earlier question about small business lending. I think that that probably plays a bigger role, which is that the the really large banks um, pulled back a great deal after the financial crisis. Yeah. One of the other things I just find interesting just from what you're talking about here and just, you know, glance through like research is it seems like a lot of times, quote unquote, smart money will, will leverage their lawyers and, you know, 200 IQ people to almost manipulate these markets. And I know this recent example here with the Blackstone uh, Havananian deal, you mind talking about how they were trying to manipulate CDS markets and it's kind of an in the weeds thing, but pretty fascinating if people aren't familiar with it. Yeah, absolutely. This is an issue that's attracted a lot of attention. I think probably because of the role that CDS had in the financial crisis, now people are like overly sensitive to manipulation in derivatives and particularly CDS. So what happened here is that so to take a step back, like what is a CDS contract? Uh, you're paying if you are long CDS, if you own CDS, you're paying money to somebody in the hopes that if reference entity, if the firm that you've bought the CDS on defaults, then you're going to get like a windfall payment. And so it sets up these incentives so that you actually kind of hope that a firm defaults on a payment. And what happened with GSO, which is a credit arm of the Blackstone Group, is that in a couple situations, the more recent one being Havnanian, uh, they were long a lot of CDS. So they had this huge incentive for Havnanian to default. Um, And they actually tried to manipulate the company to force them to default, even though they weren't like were they even holders of the bonds? They were they were they were. I don't think that they were holders of the bonds. They're just speculating. They weren't even hedging their risk. No. Yeah. So that's another thing about the CDS market is that you don't have to be a holder of a bond to buy CDS. Right. You can just like speculate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And I think most of the market participants are. Well, we we don't necessarily want to call them speculators, but they're not using CDS for hedging purposes. But anyway, Blackso might say, hey, we have credit risk somewhere else. And this is just a alt hedge on some of our other exposures. Yeah, uh, they they might have made that claim, but I don't think that it was true. In this case, the way so I think the interesting question is, like, what's the mechanism by which Blackstone is actually forcing the company to default? And what they did is that they offered Havnanian really cheap refinancing. Um, Mm. So they kind of like extended the maturity of a loan and they said, all right, we're going to issue, we're going to lend you on a cheap basis. Uh, We're going to extend this maturity in exchange for you defaulting on something that's relatively minor. And so really the only loser there was whoever wrote the CDS or sold the CDS to GSO, who was 
Goldman Sachs. And so Goldman Sachs was up in arms about this. Uh, they took Hovnanian to court. And I think that they eventually settled. But there are still some other lawsuits outstanding are, about this Are you this suggesting that the uh, vampire squid Goldman Sachs actually got outsmarted <laughs> by somebody in this scenario? Yeah. No, like they got it. played. They got like owned it. by Blackstone. Did they really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I've got, I've got one of my good friends from Wharton who I grew up with. He's on the GSO team. So it's uh, good to see these Wharton guys uh, are doing some, some interesting things. <laughs> yeah, f- fighting the evil empire. Yeah. Wow. But I think the ultimate concern – so there's only really like two incidences of this sort of manipulated default taking place. But the bigger concern is that if we allow manipulated – default to count as a credit event that will trigger CDS, then that moral hazard could eventually be priced into CDS, which will make the market a lot more expensive. And I think that's what regulators are concerned about right now. Cool. Yeah, it just kind of destroys the integrity of CDS. Yeah. And so, so what ended up happening there? Did they put the clamps it's down on? It's still in court. Okay, it is? Gotcha. Yeah, and I think ISDA, which is one of the uh, oversight bodies for CDS, they are taking they are issuing some stern statements about mm-hmm. this sort of action and i think if we caught a whiff of this again they would probably try to revise the rules of what counts as a credit event um to disincentivize yeah. this toward the sort of thing huh another um another interesting anecdote you have you have a lot of great insights and in all these things that show up in the media that i'm like oh that's kind of cool but you actually know all the details another one yeah. is like toys r us like i know you had a lot of Super interesting insights there. You mind walking through that bankruptcy and some of the spinoff insights you have? Sure. I mean, Toys R Us was just a mess. Um, the bankruptcy, so Toys R Us filed for Chapter 11. This was partially set off by a run of vendors. So if you're Toys R Us, you're not making all of your toys, right? There's mm-hmm. a bunch of other toy producers who are selling you their toys, often on credit, Um And you then sell those toys and then pay them back. And Toys R Us relied pretty heavily on this type of credit. Um, A lot of these vendors caught wind of the fact that maybe Toys R Us was not going to be able to restructure one of their loans. And so there was kind of a run in Mm. trade credit on Toys R Us um, prior to the holiday season. And they thought that they would be able to refinance, and so they didn't think this would be an issue. Uh, So these vendors pulled their terms, demanding money up front from Toys R Us, which is what pushed them Mm. to bankruptcy unexpectedly. And usually these days, when a big firm files for Chapter 11, they have some sort of plan in the back of their mind of what's going to happen. And that wasn't the case at all with Toys R Us. I mean, they have Mm. this initial affidavit of what they were expecting from the bankruptcy, and it's insane when you read it. It's like, oh, I mean, we just... we need to pay ourselves, the managers, because we're really uh, going to make like a big push to expand the business. We're going to invest a lot. Uh, we're going to revamp like the Toys R Us experience. And so we need a lot more money. And they actually were pretty good at convincing their vendors that they were going to come out of it like totally healthy. Um, and so one of, yeah. I think, the perverse effects of Toys R Us on on chapter 11's going forward is that they convinced a lot of their trade vendors to continue making toys and giving them those toys on unsecured credit terms. And then when all of a sudden they announced that they were just going to liquidate all of their U.S. firms, I mean, that left a lot of vendors like totally screwed over. For example, I think they owe Lego something like $30 million. I'm not sure if that was entirely post-petition on secured credit, but still, I mean, that's a lot of money. The good news on that, Kate, is 
amongst between Jeremy and I's kids, we've probably funded <laughs> about fifteen million of these damn Legos. So, right. so they're not out that yeah, bad. Yeah, you'll, uh, you'll keep them going. <laughs> the, 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 the truth, though, is that we're probably actually part of their demise because we're also probably just buying it from Amazon instead of Toys R Us. Yeah, well, that's, that's true. true. We're definitely part of Toys R Us's demise, but I don't feel that bad for Lego because because <laughs> okay. we, we own a lot of those things and they're expensive. So they are expensive. Um, how do you, how do you think this sort of death by Amazon is going to be true across broader retail? Like, do you have, have you seen this play up in anybody else beyond Toys R Us or any any thoughts about retail? Yeah, so I, I hadn't gotten too much into Amazon. That's clearly what ultimately drove the demise of Toys R Us. I don't necessarily think that it was preordained. I think that Toys R Us could have been a little bit more smart about how they handled the online marketplace, and they just didn't. Um, but overall, I mean, yeah, I, I totally think there's a retail apocalypse going on. Uh, I think that that's driven largely by Amazon, but also like the successful big box retailers like Walmart. Um I think there will be a long-term cyclical downturn, uh, a decrease, a shrinking of not only malls, but a bunch of retail firms. Um, You'll have, like, little cycles around that. So right now, retail's actually been doing well for the past couple months. That's mostly because uh, commercial real estate in some big cities has actually dropped off a little bit, which has been good for retailers. But I think there'll be many cycles around a general long-term downturn. Uh, in terms of who's coming up next, I mean, I think uh, it was interesting, like, J. Crew was able to do some sort of fancy transaction that, like, shielded their IP assets from certain creditors. So they mm-hmm. got some refinancing, which saved them. They were kind of on the edge for a little while. Mm-hmm. But there's still uh, other retailers that are in dire straits. I mean, Sears... Um, has for a while, even though they're trying to close stores, they're right on the edge there. Um, There's some luxury brands. I don't know if you're familiar with like Vince, I think they make this really comfy, really expensive clothing. Their kind of probability of default is quite high. Um, yeah, there, there's a few out there. So, where are you, where, what's sort of the cutting edge frontier of your bankruptcy research? So, where are you focused, uh, your latest efforts now? Um, I'm, again, kind of more interested in the overall structure of a bankruptcy code. Um, Right now, I'm doing some work on what the difference is between a big bankruptcy, you know, a firm where you've got publicly traded equity prior to filing and bonds. Yeah, like Lehman. Lehman's actually so big that my computer, like, can't handle it. And so I have a whole separate drive for just for the Lehman bankruptcy. Go Um, back to where you started. Yeah. yeah, basically, full circle. But I'm also interested, I mean, the general wisdom is that Chapter 11 was not designed for small businesses. As I mentioned earlier, 80 to 90% of them, when they fail, they don't file for bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And so there's this big question of, like, is it worth it to have a separate code for small businesses? Is that working at mm-hmm. all? Um, I think the the general wisdom is no. I mean, most small businesses that fail, like there isn't a whole lot of enterprise value left over anyway. Mm-hmm. And so maybe it's fine that we don't have a chapter for small businesses. But for medium-sized businesses, I do think that there is some value left over. Um, it can be valuable to preserve jobs. Uh, and so I'm comparing how effective the code is for, for big firms versus medium-sized firms. Well, we had some politics discussion, but we know our president has used the uh, the, the bankruptcy code. Any any comments on on Trump <laughs> bankruptcies while we're on, we're on the topic of this? When I was going around and giving a presentation of uh, my my job market paper, which is the paper that you have to present to schools when you're trying to get a job as a professor. One of my motivating examples was actually a quote from the equity committee of one of Trump's bankruptcies. And they were like, 
please, can we have an unsecured creditors committee? Because someone needs to rein this guy in. And I don't know how, but somehow there was no unsecured creditors mm. committee formed in that case. Maybe it's because he had gone through the system a few times and actually like knew uh, certain people who were in charge of potentially appointing a committee. But anyway, so I had these motivating examples that were pretty funny, and I took them out of my presentation once I went on the job market because I thought it was inappropriate. Gotcha. Um, that's that's interesting. Maybe, maybe hired some folks from Blackstone that uh, <laughs> knew how to work it. Maybe. Um, so anyways, so transitioning uh, away from that, uh, something even more interesting, and you've got about 50 interesting things, but, but tell us more oh. about your podcast with uh, – Luigi here, and I, you know, I, I can't help but read your website. Um, you know, you say capitalism leads to prosperity, but capitalism could lead to self, lead to self destruction. You mind mm -hmm. kind of talking about capital isn't the podcast and what you guys are doing there? Sure. <clears throat> um, so the podcast has evolved a bit. So our slogan now is "What's working in capitalism today," and most importantly, "What isn't." which is like not particularly creative, but we just ended up saying that on every episode. Uh, the general idea behind it, I mean, first of all, one of the things I like about the title is that if you're just kind of a, a lay listener or like if you haven't even listened to the episodes, people think that we're communists. Mm -hmm. And so we get some reviews that are like, oh, those communist idiots. But if you actually <laughs> listen to us, I mean, Luigi is a professor at the University of Chicago. Uh, yeah, I like, there's him. no yeah, he's way. Hardcore. Yeah, there's uh, no <laughs> way he's a communist. <laughs> he's a free market guy for yeah. sure. I mean, we're we're both free market people. Right? We're both staunch capitalists. But we think it's a little naive to leave capitalism completely unfettered because we're human and humans try to manipulate things and humans also make mistakes. Um, so for example, I mean there's issues of monopoly power or issues of collusion or issues of people in power potentially manipulating the education education system uh, to give their own kids a leg up, which then, you know, distorts it distorts playing fields, it distorts human capital markets, and then you'll have like inefficient allocation of human resources. There's all sorts of issues that make us think, okay, a, a perfect free market is not the system that we want to work in. That's naive. But there's also naivety on the other side. If you overregulate, that creates incentives for corruption, uh, for cronyism. And so we don't want to have too many regulations or the extreme version of that. We don't want to have state ownership either. And so what's the right balance here when there's room for manipulation on both sides? Um, and we think that it's really like a case-by-case -case basis sort of thing. Every industry, every market has its own frictions, its own information asymmetries, its own potential for manipulation. And so we should just explore these issues one by one. Well, Kate, on that note, we're just basically ran out of time. Uh, Bummer. Talking with Kate Walduck, <laughs> um, assistant professor at Georgetown, own podcast, Capital Capital isn't. isn't. Capital isn't. Uh, thanks for joining us in the studio today. Thanks. Wes, great to have you back. You've been listening to Behind the Markets on SiriusXM 111. Thanks to our producer today, Patty McMahon. Uh, you can listen to us on our Behind the Markets podcast. Have a great week, everybody. Don't forget to check out Behind the Markets Live every Friday, 1 to 2 p.m. Eastern on SiriusXM's Business Radio, Channel 111. Join us next week for another edition of the Behind the Markets podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton.